Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast among comedy podcasts. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for listening, whether you are a returning listener or a first-time listener. I very much appreciate it, but I will give an extra thanks to you first-time listeners. And if you want to like or follow us on social media, you can on Facebook and Twitter. At There It Is Pod, you can also go to thereitispod.com and read up on old episodes and read some old blogs that are up there. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. A little longer preamble today because I wanted to talk about something that was on my mind. I showed Justina what I think, for my money, is one of the greatest pilots of a television show in television history. It was the pilot for The West Wing, Impeccable Acting, Impeccable Writing. And I, I just was re-inspired because that's the kind of work I want to do. And when I say that, I don't mean I want to be on something that big. I mean, I want to do work that is that good. When you watch Martin Sheen do his monologues or Rob Lowe have his monologue or Bradley Whitford's work, and everyone's working that, I can just name the whole cast. You're seeing some really impeccable work, really, really great work. And that was the sort of work that inspired me to want to be an actor. Uh, of course, when I first said I wanted to be an actor, I realized that's the type of person I was, is when I saw Bill Murray and Ghostbusters. But over the years, I've just watched a lot of stuff because growing up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, there weren't a lot of opportunities to learn about the work. So I had to educate myself by watching stuff watching TV shows, watching movies, and I learned a lot about craftsmanship. Not necessarily how to do it, but what it looked like. And when you watch West Wing, you see what it looks like, because that is some phenomenal work. And I noticed that's kind of few and far between now. In the 90s, there's a ton of great work. ER, Seinfeld, Friends had a lot of great work on it. Uh, Sopranos, Sopranos started at the end of the 90s, um, and same with West Wing. Maybe it was 2000 for both of those shows, but nevertheless, that sort of era I'm counting together. You could go back to some dumb TV show in the 80s, like a bad sitcom, and see good acting in a lot of cases. And I think that's because a lot of the actors from those shows have a theatrical background. They just learned a lot of great technique as they were coming along. And I think they were focused on being good, too. But a lot of it has to do with scripts. Uh, 20 years ago, someone asked Gregory Peck, who do you think is going to be the next big, great actor? Is it Matt Damon? Is it Ben Affleck? Is it Skeet Ulrich? Uh, that's a real actor, um, whose name probably uh, was just ruined in the industry once Lil John got a hold of it. But nevertheless... Someone asked Gregory Peck that, and his answer was, there are a lot of great actors today. The problem isn't whether or not there are good actors. The problem is, are there good scripts? There are not a lot of great scripts anymore. And I think we've all seen that a lot of 
a lot of uh, the dialogue and stuff isn't so good. I think there are places where you are seeing good work now. I'd say The Flash, you're seeing great work from Tom Cavanaugh, Grant Gustin, and, and Jesse L. Martin, like really great actors, all theater guys, right? So that work is still out there to view and to learn from and be inspired by, but ultimately, when it comes to the entertainment industry, I think the reason you're not seeing a lot of stuff is because people learn the wrong lesson. I mean, Jaws, great script, great acting, really great movie, solid, solidly well-made movie. Hollywood learned the wrong lesson from it, and they started just copying it. And that watered down the industry. You go through the 80s, and you don't have a bunch of Jaws. You have a bunch of Jaws copycats. So things aren't as good. And I think the same happens uh, today. I mean, Deadpool did really well, and then there's this whole, like, let's make superhero movies R-rated. Deadpool should have been R-rated. Maybe not Batman versus Superman. Like, a, a Superman is in an R-rated movie. Or a movie that was trying to be R-rated. The DVD release is R-rated. And that makes no sense to me. <laughs> but some people love it. Some people hate it. Nevertheless, uh, I digress. Um, I think people learn the wrong lesson from notoriety and fame. They see something that, you know, they see someone rise up the ranks and get super famous and then they want to do that they want to get super famous they want to get that successful they want to be that rich and then they start asking how did you do it and people say like well here's what i did and so then people plot a course and they say oh that's what i'm gonna do and then that should happen for me and that's not how it works and there are also people who guarantee that and they have no place to guarantee that um example uh there was a stand-up who was in a documentary, kind of a documentary, about 11 or 12 minute, years ago. And he was saying, uh, because of the things he's done, which was, was at a couple of festivals, got acknowledgement there, that, you know, I should be headlining now. And he wasn't. He was kind of lamenting that he wasn't headlining. And it just smacked of someone being told, if you do this and you do that, then you will become a headliner. And that's a guarantee you can't make. But I have seen a couple of stand-up classes and stand-up boot camps. And Doug Stanhope wrote a blog about this, uh, about why these things are bogus. And I think what's happened is with some of these stand-up classes, not all of them, but some of them, uh, especially 10 years ago, they were making promises that they couldn't make. And there's a lot of like phony stuff like that out there. You could go on Craigslist and find some ad that says, go to bartending school and you will start making $500 a night, which is not something they could promise because they don't know if their students are even going to get hired as bartenders and they don't know where they would get hired and how many people would go there and how much they would make in tips. They just cannot promise that you will make $500 a night. But I have seen those. And I think that happens in the world of entertainment, too. People will tell you, you have to take a workshop like this, this acting workshop. Get that on your resume or get that you w went to UCB on your resume. And then uh, we can start casting you. And Katie Frame, uh, who's in the Reformed Whores episode, uh, I believe it was her. She was saying that an agent told her that. Take a UCB class because... There are people who are only 
the casting directors who are only looking at people who've been to UCB, right? So I think what happens is people learn the wrong lesson. And Katie didn't. Katie's phenomenal. I'm just saying the people who tell her, oh, you got to go do this. They are watering down the market because what people do is they say, well, let me just take this so I can get that. And that's not how it works. Will Farrell has said in an interview that he, whenever he goes back to the Groundlings, people say, well, how do I get on SNL? And um, what he always says is, if your focus is on how to get on SNL here, then you're not going to do the work that you need to do in order to get on SNL. So the thing that people learn, the wrong lesson that people learn is just plotting this course and going through whatever they need to go through to get on SNL or whatever. And they don't focus on being good. That's what he's speaking to. That's what Will Ferrell was speaking to. And that answer is focus on being good. Focus on doing the work genuinely doing the work and then maybe you'll be good enough to get on SNL but there's still no guarantee you're going to get on SNL but you'll be good and maybe that's the focus people need to have is just being really good I think I've mentioned it previously that uh, in the Steve Martin trailer for his master class he said that people would ask him how do you get on uh, how do you get an actor an agent how do you get this or that and he said why aren't people Focus on being really, really good. And that really is the thing. And I, I think the hang-up is that people jump on the rat race. And they plot a course of getting whatever fame that they want to have. They learn the wrong lesson from the stuff that they are inspired by. And they said, instead of doing the work that they did, I'm just going to do the things they did. So that's not focusing on progress. And that's not really even focusing on having a process. It's certainly not focused on having good craftsmanship in your work. It's just, oh, how do they do it? Well, let me just do that and then it'll happen for me. And that's going to lead to a lot of broken hearts and a lot of time of working hard, busting your hump and not having anything to show for it. And then there's some people who it actually does work for them and they're unfulfilled at the end. And why is that? Because they weren't focused on being good. So when they went through the progress and the process, uh, which are kind of the same thing. I mean, the process is progress. <laughs> That's where the, all the progress is, is in the process of you getting better and learning all these things and doing these things that a lot of people don't want to do. They lose fulfillment when they're not focused on that stuff. There was a clinic that John Mayer did at Berkeley School of Music that I watched because I'm a nerd. And he was saying in it at the time, this was several years ago, uh, he was saying 10 years ago, if you sold 10 million copies of an album, you made it. Uh, the music industry has changed now at the time of his speaking. If you sell one or two million copies, then you've made it. And he knows people who are musicians, who sold one million copies of their album and they still were just chasing something. But at that point, they didn't know what to chase. And I think that's one of the disconnects that people have with putting out work is that they will say, I want to get on SNL. And then they don't get on SNL and they have nothing to show for all the work that they've been doing or all the like busting their butt to like 
check off things as they their plotted course that someone told them to make or the one they mistakenly thought they should have made. Uh, so they're disappointed. And then there's some people who get on the big things. And again, I'm just saying, you know, SNL is kind of like, it's, it's a placeholder word, essentially. I mean, it's, it could be that, it could be Daily Show, it could be anything that's like being famous. Um, it's just a placeholder for having made it, right? And people get on there and then they don't know what they should do, you know? And it's because they didn't, this is what John Mayer was saying about those people who sold a million copies. They didn't define for themselves what making it was. And I think that happens for comics. I think that happens for anybody who is uh, seeking just the fame. They can easily get there. And uh, not, it's not that easy, but they can get there. It's easy for them to get there and then still feel unfulfilled because they weren't focusing on just being good. Yesterday I was talking to Justina because I was being a real nerd yesterday too about how Kayla Milady, who's uh, on the third episode of the podcast, said that what Eminem did was he would take a word and, and he'd write in a composition book just fill the page with words that rhymed with it that he knew that's some real that's a real process right there he's doing all this work trying to come up with names he's building his vocabulary and he's just like writing all this stuff out so it sticks in his brain more that's maybe the work you don't want to do but if you're a rapper and you're looking at eminem and you're saying i want to be that it takes doing that there's no easy cheat cheat life hack you can do to making it. Just focus on being good. And then we're all going to prosper from that because there's good work around us that inspires us to do better work. And then we can be a part of good work if we're lucky. But as Conan O'Brien famously said, if you work hard and you're kind, amazing things will happen to you. Nowhere in that does it mean you, if you take this class and do this thing, you will make it. Just work hard, be kind, and be happy with the amazing things that happen. Okay, preamble over. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you have something to add? You can on social media. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at There It Is Pod, and you can share what you think about that. Coming up right now is my chat with Katie Berry. She is a writer and improviser here in New York City. She performs at the Magnet Theater, and she performs with North Coast, and she has a web series. We talk about all that and confidence on stage and also politics in comedy. Really great chat. Here it is, my chat with Katie Berry. You started taking classes in 2013 at Magnet, but you had studied previous to that uh, writing at the... At the new school, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. <laughs> when did you go to the new school? Um, I graduated in 2009, so I guess I started in 2005. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so you're doing a lot of writing. Were you doing any performing then? Yeah, well, I was doing, my major was nonfiction and my minor was playwriting. And then I mm -hmm. did take a few 
like performance classes. I took one class where I had to write and perform a one woman show. It was so bad. I did a terrible job, but it was like a good learning experience. Um, yeah. And I always wanted to do comedy, but I didn't actually get into it until much later. Oh, interesting. So you didn't, you performed before you started taking improv classes, but it wasn't comedy. Yeah. Like I, I wrote my high school play Mm -hmm. and I did like all the, all that stuff. Like I was very theatrical, but for some reason, comedy just seemed like, um, I don't know. I just didn't know how to get into it or it just seemed kind of intimidating. And Mm. even though I was like the class clown. So yeah, it took me a minute (laughs) to figure that out. So when you started at the Magnet Theater, where do you think, where would you assess your ability as an improviser? Where would you say you were, your skill level there? Well, when I finally decided to pull the trigger, I was very determined Mm -hmm. to succeed. Like it was kind of like it was, I always had this calling. It took me a while to acknowledge it. So when I went into it, I was like, I'm going to just fucking crush this. So I would say that I was a little bit in a different headspace than most level one people because I was, I refused to give into fear or be intimidated. And I also really believed in myself at that point. Like I knew I was funny and I knew that I was going to be a natural. (laughs) Right. Okay. Okay. So when you were starting out, did you feel that you, since you did have some performance experience, did you feel that you struggled at all or were you, did you feel that you hit the ground running since you were so determined? I I think I hit the ground running for sure. Like Mm -hmm. I took, I started out with an intensive because I knew that I knew it was going to be a good thing for me. I knew it was what I wanted to do. So I was like, I don't even want to fuck around with taking like an eight week course. I'm going to do a two week intensive. It was like improv from nine to five for two solid weeks and just blasted through level one and two. And then I was like, whew, just like doing my reps. Wow. Okay. I totally believe that because I was surprised to find out that you started in 2013 doing improv. If you had told me that you'd been doing it for 10 years, I would have believed you. Oh, thank you. Well, you're welcome. And it's because you're a dynamic performer, and I think it's because you went in it with that hunger. Yeah, I think, like, yeah, I had the hunger, but also... I was always improvising for my friends. Like a lot uh-huh. of the things that they taught, I was such a, I'm such a goof and I'm constantly performing for people in my life. And it just felt so like natural to me. Like, yeah. yeah. Whereas other a people, lot of sense. you know, other people struggle, you know? Right. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense growing up joking around with my brother and our friends the way we did. I think it did lend itself to doing improv. Uh, and that's because if you, if you take any improv class, they tell you that the way you played as a kid is what we're trying to recreate, but you lost it somewhere along the way. And so if you are one who kept playing along the way and goofing around with your friends and family, you didn't lose it so much along the way. So you can sort of hit the ground running. That's so true. Yeah. I think... 
you are uniquely talented though because i think people who eventually become to be as skilled as you are don't have that sort of start and they don't necessarily hit it that quickly you know like how like you're in north coast phenomenal group how long have you been performing with north coast for about three years i think right so three years ago it was 2014 a year yeah. into you doing improv <laughs> yeah yeah that's, um, that's pretty impressive that you were able to get on a team that was so strong uh, a year in or a year or so into your improv performing yeah they were nervous to add me because i was so green and mm -hmm. i was kind of resented them for that because i was like I was like, oh, but now in retrospect, I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I was right. I was very green, but um, <laughs> I was scared out of my mind, too. But I was just I just ugh, I would just put on like pump up jams in my earbuds and be like, you are going to fucking do this. Okay. Like I would I just I felt like because I got such a late start. I had no time to waste mm -hmm. and I needed to prove myself immediately. That is where I am. I mean, I started doing improv in 2013 and I'm older than you. So there's that. <laughs> you know, so like I even more so, and I got up to New York recently. So I even, I really am in that headspace of like, I don't really have time to mess around. But I think uh, one thing that I'm noticing is that there just has to be a confidence level that you're having, or maybe it was those affirmations listening to pump up music. I mean, what? <laughs> where do you think uh, that confidence came from? Uh, I think it was um, before I moved back to New York. I spent a few years in California, and I was just like very unhappy there, and I. Um, it, it, I just felt like it was the realization that life doesn't get like you have to make your own happiness and you have to be the change you want to see and mm -hmm. be bold. And it, it just kind of like struck me that if I didn't um, have faith in myself, then I really had nothing. I should just fucking roll over and be a housewife. Like mm -hmm. you, I was like, I have to, believe in my talent and like let myself love myself enough to believe I I deserve to be happy and that I could do this and I think it just took a few years of fucking around and realizing that that it wasn't happier on the other side you know what I mean I do know what you mean yeah that makes complete sense how did that journey go for you I mean it's not a switch that you can flick and now you're there. I mean, it's definitely something that in your mind, a coin just drops and you go, oh, this is a realization I'm having that I need to do this. But it could be hard to stick to it or just to make the steps every day. What were you doing to continue on the right path? Um, I guess. Um, well, I was following my passion for one. Mm hmm. Um, loving writing, loving art, loving performance since I was like pretty much out of the womb. That's mm -hmm. something that you can only ignore for so long or not ignore, but kind of treat as a hobby until it, it's sort of trying to live with it as just a little contained hobby 
um, it made me kind of sad and angry mm-hmm. that as mm-hmm. an artist, I would have to, you know, if I wanted to be an accountant my whole life, I would have such a nice little life laid out for me and mm-hmm. all the steps and the degrees and the job. And um, people are rewarded for those types of things. But artists, I really felt guilty for wanting to do that. Like I was some sort of... Um, like frivolous person. And that's just not the case. And eventually I realized that it doesn't, you know, maybe the source of it was wanting to be like financially secure in the long run. Cause that was kind of beaten to my head as a kid. Right. And then it was kind of like, I am so fucking miserable when I'm not creating that I would rather be poor and do this and follow my passion mm-hmm. than be rich and be in some corner office fucking losing my soul. So then I think once I sort of made that decision, I think I like did a lot of fear-based choices in my life that were going the safe route and it didn't pay off emotionally because I got depressed. And then I sort of realized, uh, money doesn't matter. Like this is who I am. This is my passion. Gotta follow it. I'm so with you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I am relating to all of this because it is so easy to fall in, into that depression when there's something you know you want to do and you're away from it. And, uh, yeah, you do get beat into your head. Like, I mean, sure, we have to eat. Uh, I mean, yeah. so we have to do that. But if, if it it can't come at the expense entirely of us doing this thing that we want to do and that we're so passionate about. So I feel that you have to find the way that you still eat, but you're doing the thing you really want to do because life is too short. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just not worth not trying. And if you're going to bother trying, you should try pretty hard. Absolutely. It's funny how much it boils down to just like an existential crisis. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're all going to die. So <laughs> better go do a Harold. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's like you have this time now, so why not use it at maximum benefit to you? Yeah, absolutely. But we're also scared we want to like stay in the lines, color inside the lines. Or at least if you were raised like, you know, we all some people are they I don't know, some people are very blessed. They have super supportive families. Mine were kind of a little more traditional and they were, mm-hmm. you know, that seemed like fuddy duddy business, all that all that hullabaloo, that shenanigans, you know. What but, uh, were you doing out in California? Ugh. Well, I followed a man out there, which was the um, dumbest thing. And we bought a house together, and it got really fucking domestic. And that was like, again, I think I was just like young, yearning for love and acceptance, like mm-hmm. all that psychological shit. Were um, you doing any entertainment stuff out there? I was, I was thinking maybe that was the reason you went out there. No, I wish. I was in Northern California, which doesn't, um, in the Valley. And I was writing for a magazine, shitty little magazine. Mm -hmm. And, um, at first I thought that was pretty great. I was working on my writing credits and it felt productive, but, um, just was not the place for me. I got very despondent. So I had to go. (laughs) That makes complete sense. And, you know, if you're away from where you really want to be, then. And also you're like away from it, but close to it. You know, it's like, you know, that you want to create and 
you're on the same side of the country as LA, you're in the same state as LA, you're a few hours from LA, but you're not doing LA stuff like you want to do, or like as far as creating and making something is concerned. So that must have been hard too. Well, I will say in that time, I started reading about writing for TV. And I started writing a bunch of um, pilots and spec scripts and kind of giving myself a bit of an unofficial education. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started kind of playing with the idea that maybe like I could, I don't know, I could pursue that. And then, yeah, I did like a, a free intro to improv class at the magnet. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the, I, I flew out for a home visit and like went, did it came back and was like, Oh, I was like, fuck this, fuck all this. Uh, the house is yours. I'm, I'm gone. Bye. <laughs> Um, I mean, I can't imagine how to make a move like a cross country move. I mean, we don't have to get into the details, of course, but I just mean uh, the the guts you have. Yeah, I felt bad. I mean, I broke that man's heart, but mm. um, well, I was assuming, and I was going to allow the audience to assume that it was <laughs> maybe uh, more mutual. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was well, like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you were wanting a different life than you were leading. Yeah, I mean, completely different. And he had a daughter, so he couldn't leave. Right. And he was just kind of stuck there, and it just wasn't. It was so. Um, it's the impossible modern... to make that work. It was, but it was also the modern female like conundrum of, okay, well, you were raised saying like house and a home and a husband and like here are all these boxes checked like shouldn't I be happy and sometimes uh shit's complicated and you make you like it was something I wasn't prepared for from you know yeah watching fairy tale shit growing up and then when it happened and I chose myself essentially mm-hmm. uh it fucking paid off it paid off for me in so many ways. And like, I tell people now, like that saying fortune favors the bold is like my fucking go-to. I'm like, if it scares you, but you want to do it, like hurl yourself into it because the universe will repay you tenfold. It's crazy. Yeah. I think that's actually really incredible. I mean, that was an incredibly difficult situation to be in to realize, Oh, I'm not where, I need to be, um, and yet I'm anchored to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, that so that you're working against so much. Yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, it was like okay, like we bought a house together, so there's like there's some money tied up, there's some property, there's emotions, there's you know. Mm-hmm. But um, all the material stuff, I just. It, it just fades away. It just, it, it really felt do or die to me. It really mm-hmm. did. And I was just like, I just was like, take it all, take it all. Cause I just wanted to be happy, you know? Right. Doing comedy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well also like investing in yourself or like being who you are. Totally. You know? And if society puts a lot on us, uh, in, in these regards of the like white picket fence sort of lifestyle. And some of us 
realize later, oh, that wasn't real to want that. Like, it's fine for some people to want that, but it doesn't mean that everyone should have that and that's what we all should be working for. Totally. Does that, do you think, affect the sort of things that you write? Have you written anything about that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I have a very particular comedic voice. Yes. That's yeah. very, yeah, it's very honed in my writing and it's very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in it. And I, it's, I like, I like writing about sort of rebellious woman or mm-hmm. women who don't fit in the status quo or, just struggling to find their place. Um, Mm -hmm. That's kind of like how my web series, Katie in the Bush that I did, it was kind of like about that. Just a fucking off kilter girl, me pretty much. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I was wanting to talk to you about Katie in the Bush your your web series. Um, Before that, had you, I assume you had already found your comedic voice. Yeah, like I had done a lot of writing exercises and I did like all the UCB sketch classes and I um, had been, I don't know, I guess just like finding your comedic voice is kind of akin to just finding who you are and believing in your, um, the first thought that comes into your head Mm -hmm. and like trusting your instincts that that's, um, that's your voice that's your like real true voice, that Mm -hmm. inner monologue. Mm -hmm. And to be able to put that on paper in like an authentic way um, that other people might not get, Mm -hmm. but um, like with Katie in the bush, like I knew some people wouldn't be into it, but I was like, this is how it is in my head. It's zany. I'm constantly like making jokes. It's very like, it it felt very true to me. So it Mm -hmm. it was really like good and like, a good project for me. Right. In my creating comedy, I've gotten more and more hesitant to really express the thought that came to my mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Did you find it difficult when you were writing that web series uh, to really be that honest? In a way, no. no because, mm-hmm. But yes, later on. No, initially, because growing up, I was teased a lot and a defense mechanism that I developed was to say all your embarrassing stuff out, yell it out to the world, and then they can't hurt you or use it against you. So if like, you know, like, I I don't know. (laughs) If I make the joke about myself, then no one else can make that joke because I already made it. Yeah, and, like, it still, like, comes out to this day, like, if I have fucking yeast infection or something, I'm, like, in, like, pain or itching or just, like, miserable, like, I'll just fucking tell people and just stop, like, I don't know, I'm, like, weirdly open, there's, like, no filter, and I think Mm -hmm. it's just a defense mechanism, so for me, like, putting, putting myself on the page was, like, felt like something I've been doing for a while, Mm -hmm. um, but when it came out and when it was time to like have people work on it, have people put their faith in it, um, Mm -hmm. come, come on to put their time and talent into that voice. Mm -hmm. And Oh my God, that shit is scary as fuck. (laughs) Like that was 
the scariest thing. I've Why? Ever- what made it scary? I just didn't want to waste their time. Ah. Um, because I was so grateful to some of the like incredibly talented people who were I didn't have much money at all. I mean, I paid for Katie in the Bush out of pocket. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, a lot of people just did it for free out of the goodness of their heart. And I just, I just didn't want to waste their time. I wanted them to believe in it. Mm-hmm. And then putting it out to the sea of comedians and you know how critical comedians can be. Mm-hmm. I, oh God, it, it's, it's like a free fall. And ultimately, I just had to be like, I would come back to the scripts months later and read them and I would laugh out loud and that would soothe me. And I'd be like, this still feels true to me Mm -hmm. a month later, a year later. Fuck it. Like, let's we're going to do it. It's and I just had to let go. I had to let go and just do it. It was scary as shit. But it was the best thing I've ever done because it made me less critical, which I think comedians are just so fucking critical of each yeah. other. Yeah, yeah. And you just shouldn't be because it, so, it just made you know, it's yeah. it, it's easy to get into that. People have gotten really cynical about comedy. Uh, they they read it in this. They, they're looking at all the moves and they're yeah. seeing moves that they wouldn't make. So therefore, it's a bad move. And it's like, well, not necessarily. <laughs> You know, it's it gets yeah. to be uh, those sort of discussions that I'm hearing less of, but it's still happening. And it is still, well, that artist wanted to make it that way, and that's their voice. And you can not like it, but you can't say they should not have done it because they they did it exactly the way they wanted to. So sure. what's wrong with that? You know, it's just not your thing. Huh. Does it make it wrong? Yeah. And I think that when people, when people finally put themselves in the hot seat where Mm -hmm. it's like the fucking pressure is really on them. I mean, I hope that they would, I I find it impossible to think that they wouldn't shit their pants the way I shit my pants. (laughs) And that it it took me down like several notches. And then instead of, you know, if uh, someone's, you know, project or whatever popped up in my feed, I'd be like, Oh, what's this person doing? And judge it. Now I'm like, (laughs) Like now I'm like, wow, this is, they put their time in this, their effort. I'd watch it and like respect the fucking hell out of them. Cause you know what? They're doing the damn thing. And and also like, that was a huge learning experience for me. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. It was my first time producing something. And so I was just learning as I went. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was an important growth, growth experience for my, my art. So you know, fuck them if they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is, you know, for me, um, that is the easier part for me to handle. Uh, the, if they don't, you know, not everything is for everybody and I can accept that I can put something out and some people will like it and some people won't. Um, I think where I get concerned now and I am definitely overly concerned is that some work for some people it's not merely well it's not for me so i don't like it even if someone said they hate it i could be fine with it but when it when it gets to be like political statements um that gets to be hard you know like when you say something and it's a valid viewpoint for a particular kind of person 
but someone who doesn't have that same viewpoint is hearing it, then you start having this sort of attack uh, that goes on. And, you know, it just, do you, I don't know how much you see this, uh, but do you think that's a, that's getting to be a little more common, the attacks on comedy because of political sides, essentially, and political arguments? I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say I pretty much fashioned myself a little bubble and cut a lot of uh, <laughs> conservatives out of my life because I don't want to hear their point of view. Um, <laughs> so like I'm like a lot of people in the comedy community are just liberal, but I will say as far as being a feminist and the um, stuff that's gone on in the community for women and the fact that there aren't a ton of people of color in the community. And that's, I mean, those issues coming up, like, yeah, those mm-hmm. have been divisive hot button issues, even among a, a community that it, essentially we all have each other's back all the time, but it, people are raw. I think this election, I mean, oh, I, gosh, yeah. Oh God, I think people like, I find myself just fucking ready to um, bite people's heads off where it's probably not productive, but mm. it's harder for me to separate the emotion. But I think that is trickling into the scene for sure. Yeah. I think what it seems like there's uh, ground for a comic making a joke and they're trying something out they post a Twitter joke and they didn't quite word it the way they feel and they're trying to make a joke and it comes off the wrong way. And so then they just get attacked. It just seems like the ground is really supple for that sort of situation to happen. Yeah, it, it is. And in some cases I could see how that's like scary and people could see it as, uh, like too much censorship, but at the Mm. same time, like so many like oppressed people have become the easy butt of the joke for so fucking long that that essentially is the easy and lazy joke. And by like stoking up the heat and putting a magnifying glass and making people like really watch their every word, it Mm -hmm. fucking, it sucks for them. And it sucks for me too. Cause I've, I definitely have to watch shit that I say, But it's good because I think it's forcing people to, like, really think about stuff way deeper than they have before and to break old habits and form new ones that are ultimately Mm -hmm. more inclusive and and just better for everyone. So Mm -hmm. it's yeah, it sucks. It's growing pains. It's it's um, awkward growing pains and. It's not necessarily always fun, <laughs> even mm-hmm. though it's comedy. Yeah, and like I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I'm a liberal and I'm a comic. Uh, yeah. I don't particularly try to make my joke work for political party, though. But it just seems so easy to make a joke. Like, like for instance, certain comics who are liberals, people have gone and found old tweets, and then mm. just like, and that just seems like attacking for the sake of attacking, but. It just seems so much harder to be raw in your expression and also articulate. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, I think that's, I think it's forcing everyone to 
become better joke writers like before you oh yeah oh yeah sure yeah um before you like the knee-jerk stuff is probably not good to put out whether you're a comic or a journalist or the president (laughs) yeah um like for sure not okay with that but it it does i don't know i think i'm just not a great joke writer (laughs) (laughs) i haven't had any issues but I just feel like there is a hesitancy for me sometimes like, well, maybe I shouldn't talk about this topic because it's such a raw topic. Uh, I'll avoid topics now. Yeah. So like that's such a common thing of just being labeled the killjoy. (laughs) Like I feel like especially for, well, not especially, but as a feminist, like I see women who make funny jokes about feminism and it just, people and I've heard people be like oh they're just like a little too much you know Mm. and like you definitely run the risk of that so I guess like for your brand um you might want to stay away from that me I just have too much verbal diarrhea to not get into it (laughs) like I guess if I wanted to be more universally liked um and like you have to think of it like in a business sense kind of I mean it's your brand. It's like how you're selling yourself. So I could, you know, shave off some of the feminist, you know, super vaginal shit that I say, but, (laughs) um, I just, that's my personal choice where I'm Mm -hmm. like, no, I'd rather be a fucking thorn in someone's side. And I know a lot of standups who are real holier than thou. And they're like, you're a comedian, you're an entertainer. You, you shouldn't leave the politics out of it. You know, um, that's their choice. I think that, you know, I've also, that was just like white men is who, who usually says that shit to me. And I'm like, uh, that, that's not my style, but whatever. You know, we're talking about uh, finding your voice and how that thing, that, that thought that's in your head, that's, you know, or those types of thoughts that are in your mind that you don't share, that's your voice. And I, I just think in this ground, it could be real scary to share that voice because that is so intimate yeah and um you know i think ultimately people should say what's on their mind and be uh and let other people say what's on their mind and if somebody is saying something you disagree with point it out and maybe they learn something so i just feel like everyone should be able to be that open and honest but i don't think people feel that they can be well, I mean, I guess it, that's interesting, but I guess it, I'm looking at it from two perspectives. Are you talking more about people who maybe want to make, who maybe are just like a little bit racist and want to like point something out like that? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not, I, I'm not applying uh, my point to that sort of situation. Okay. I just mean the, uh, the general person who's good hearted. They're not racist. They don't want to say something racist. They're, they're not going to say something sexist, but they may say something that's not perfect. Right, right, right. And then they get blasted for being imperfect. And mm. that's the sort of stuff that's like, eesh, I'm not perfect. I, I could definitely say something that could be misunderstood by complete accident. Yeah. And no, that's what makes that. me not want to open up and share. Yeah. Um, totally. I, I hear that for sure. Um, I think that 
you have to have faith that there will be people who reply and who are like, Hey, that was a little off, but like, let's talk about, you know, some mm-hmm. people are going to fly off the handle. Some people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tricky. I don't think there's any like hard and fast rules. I think right. that everyone has inherent biases that are so deep and we have to be a little forgiving that we all have them mm-hmm. and they come out in like really subtle like ways that um, it's going to take time to undo those those like little knots that have been made in our brain ropes. I don't know if that was a good analogy. <laughs> you know, like we've all I kind of been conditioned. Yeah, I, we just got to, I guess, just make a conscious choice to be thoughtful when people who are who seem to be genuinely trying are trying. Yeah, I think that's just a general good person <laughs> thing to do, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I agree. But, it's, but I will say this. When comedians I know who come out and share some, like, really fucking honest shit, even if it's uncomfortable and they mm-hmm. kind of phrase it as like, I know this is not my be you know, is my, I'm, I'm working this out in my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, here's something I'm going through. Uh, I always respect the shit out of it. It always ha- it gets, you know, a good response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anytime I've shared something really personal about myself or re- or like some innermost thought or fierce or secret, um, there's always someone out there who probably feels the same way or mm-hmm. is thinking the same thoughts or wants to comment and talk about that. So I say, go for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go for it. Fuck it. And yeah. if you say something heinous and fucked up, you'll just get what's coming to you, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think in those situations, you just have to accept that that's what you did. Like there was something I talked about on the podcast last week about something that happened out in California with some stand-ups and you know the the guy who was definitely in the wrong on Twitter was just like I guess I'll you know I'll speak when people are ready to listen he's not accepting that he did anything wrong you know and that's that's another thing I it's a it's the other side of the coin of this of like well listen if you did something wrong you still have to accept that or at least understand that everyone else thinks you did something wrong. Like, don't, don't not take your medicine here. Uh, You know, that's part of putting part of doing stuff, anything, whether you're doing it on stage or just socially. uh, Part of that is accepting you might get something wrong sometime and accepting that there's going to be blowback from it. Yeah. And I think if you can take the blowback and be like, just usually if someone's like up your ass and you like really listen and you're like, Oh my God, I'm sorry. Like have a respectful back and forth. It ends up like fine. Everything's fine. Like, you know, (laughs) be prepared to back what you say, but also like everyone needs to realize times are changing. Mm -hmm. Don't be a curmudgeon. (laughs) Like times are fucking changing and like turn on the news every like, it's, we are living in fucking weird times and it's affecting everything, like everything. Yep. And, and be aware because I feel like there's so much shit that like in improv scenes that I used to be like, Oh, whatever. Like 
just in life, you know, stupid mm-hmm. sex is bullshit. You kind of brush off, you brush off. And now, like, with everything going on, like, me and every other woman I know for the first time are like, fuck this. And we're just, like, shutting it down. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I feel like people are like, whoa. But it's like, no, like, this is part of the change. It's all part of the change. So, like, mm-hmm. ready to roll with it. Like, even if you're one of the people that gets smacked down, um, that, that kind of, that's not going to go away. I don't think like it's just going to, your beat down is just going to get harder if you don't learn to adapt. Oh, right. Reality. Yeah. What's that line in Moneyball adapt or die. Yeah. If you can't roll with what everything that's going on and moving forward, then it's going to be really hard for you to progress at all and move forward. Um, yeah. And yeah, I am hearing a lot of stories from the improv world of people putting their foot down. But you know, it's interesting. It's not like women just started saying, hey, that's not okay. It shouldn't be a surprise to men that some of these comments that they're being told are wrong or some of the behavior that they're being told is wrong. It should not be a surprise to men at all. I don't have much empathy for the guy who said something sexist and is surprised when women are like, hey enough i'm just not i don't feel bad for that guy i feel like it's we just i mean and again this is different for everyone's upbringing but like again i was raised like the sexist jokes were so easy they were just so secondhand and they were so accepted and if you did say no then you were a killjoy you were annoying like chill um so i think that you know some male improvisers probably came from the same background I did. So they kind of, even if they don't mean it, they might get nervous on stage and it might be like a backup thing to get what they will perceive as like a a shallow laugh. An easy laugh. Yeah. An easy laugh. And then, um, and then we'll just kind of let it go. But what I do think is that for the first time in my life, I'm seeing women have strength in numbers and we're using Facebook to communicate to each other. So mm-hmm. things that we used to, we were kind of conditioned to just keep to ourselves. We're now talking about en masse. And then next thing you know, you have women comparing experiences. Next thing you know, you have multiple women coming forward to, you know, out actual predators in the community. Right. Like, I mean, it, and I think that women are so taught to like, just keep, keep quiet, but also see each other as competitors and see like the other female comedian is like, you know, are you better than her? Are you worse than her? Are you, um, who are they having sex with? Like blah, 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 all this bullshit that literally is melting away at a rapid, rapid pace, which is great to see. Oh my God. It is. It's been incredible the the friendships that i've formed with women in this community mm-hmm. and the the initiatives that have kind of come forward and the support has been fucking amazing and yeah. i just think it's from like the age of the internet and a response to this trump horror yeah yeah for sure i think it's uh almost like the stars are aligned like i almost feel like this would be going on even if hillary won i feel like that groundswell has been going on for a few years now yeah totally and it's great you know um i think uh i think progress is always a good thing you know there's so much more we can talk about i do want to um i feel like there's a a 
thread that needs to be tied together here on this particular subject. Within the improv world, from a social aspect, what do you think is, aside from the obvious, like, don't be a misogynist, what are the things that men can do to create a better environment that hasn't been said yet? Hmm, that hasn't been said yet? Yeah, I don't, I just mean, don't be a sexual predator. Obviously, uh, don't try to steamroll women and act like you're high status because you're a man. What are the things that uh, are still happening that maybe aren't as heinous, but would create, if we'd stop doing them, would create a better environment? I guess, um, God, I don't know. Those things are all pretty good. You know, don't, don't steamroll, <laughs> um, make an active choice to collaborate with women. Mm. Um, do projects with women, get them on your team. If you don't have any women on your team, uh, get the fuck with it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How can someone with all the different people in the improv world now, how does someone still just get white dudes on a team like seven or eight? Certainly not saying there's something wrong with white dudes, but I just don't see how that happens. Like, if if I'm putting together a team, they're not going to be seven other Jason Fars, you know? <laughs> like, they're, they're, it's going to be all sorts of people on that team because that's just the makeup around. So, how does mm-hmm. that happen, you know? I mean, yeah, I think white guys are still, like, maybe the majority in comedy. It's, like, changing more every day. But mm-hmm. I think that's why in all of Hollywood, it's, like, white men because the one white man in power just naturally is inclined to hire the guy that reminds him of his young self. <laughs> right, and, yeah. you know, then that's his next lackey. And then that guy, is time for him to hire. And he's like, oh, that reminds me of a young me. And it's just, like, <laughs> it's what you're used to. It's what you know. It proliferates. Mm-hmm. So, like, be aware of that. And um, also, like, support female comics. Talk about really funny uh, comedians that you've seen, uh, that you love. Go out and see their work. Um, Stop making it seem like a novelty. Stop making it seem like when you see a funny lady that it's like, oh, you know. She's funny and she's a lady, guys. Like, stop that shit because Mm -hmm. there's like a bajillion – Oh my gosh, so many fucking hilarious women. I don't understand. Yeah. Like, and I think if we just put it into your vernacular, right? Um, when you're like listing, when you're on your Tinder date and listing off who your top favorite comedians are, um, <laughs> you know, make an effort to add a female to that list. <laughs> I it is an interesting thing in stand up when uh, like you'll still see someone. I haven't necessarily seen it in the last year or so, but for the longest time, I saw even women introduce a, a lady who was coming up the stage with, and everybody, this next comic is a lady. Huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, and like, that's so, I understand why people won't like that. I'm, what I'm about to say, but I'm saying it. Say it's it. It's so deeply offensive because like you said it's like the novelty it's like this sort of like if you think about it it's super offensive because it's the same tone of those online videos of somebody like oh my dog said i love you and then you see it and it's like i don't know it didn't uh it's that same sort of like isn't that something 
Like, look at you, special. Yeah. Special girl. It's so Yeah, a girl came up here and did this thing that only uh, men do, right? Yeah. Come on, guys. How are you doing that still? It's it's such a funny acknowledgement up top, though, that, like, like, for instance, I do a show occasionally called Battleicious, and it's a comedy rap battle. Mm-hmm. And I've won it a bunch of times. But, like, <laughs> I've come off stage once, and a guy was like, you're really, like, wow, I'm shocked. Like, you're really talented oh. for a girl. Like, you're really talented. <laughs> and, um, but, like, it's so funny because, like, y- there is that when you get on stage. There's, like, a little bit of expectation, a little bit of, like, all right, well, now we got to give the polite clap for the, the girls trying to fit in. And it's, um, it still exists. So <laughs> I don't know how, though. Like, I just, I could see someone say, like, I haven't seen a lady do rap a whole lot. But then it was kind of like, were you around in the 90s with Queen Latifah and Missy Elliott, you moron? <laughs> like, what? where have you been? Um, yeah. Oh, I think it's even worse, though, to be surprised that a, a woman is funny because I don't know much about comedy before vaudeville. So as far as like American comedy is concerned, in my dumb mind, it started with vaudeville. And so like there were women being funny there then. And, you know, even look at a, a nine to five, a comedy starring women came mm-hmm. out in 1980. And it was the second highest grossing film that year, or whatever, it's like the early 80s, you know? The number one film was a Star Wars film, right? So <laughs> this idea of, like, women in comedies, huh? Scratching the head. Oh, oh, that's new. No, it's not. It's not new, but the thing is, it still feels like, oh, you got your Ghostbusters That was your one treat. You know, you had your bridesmaids and then we waited a few years and then you got your Ghostbusters and we'll wait a few years. It's like, it still feels like you get one shot (laughs) and it's got to be good because if it's not good, then we're not going to give you another. Yeah. That was one thing with girls on HBO. Everyone fucking at each other's throats about whether it was good, whether it was bad, da 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 da. And I was like, it's it's one show about one like one yeah. group of women. It's it shouldn't have to fucking encompass. It shouldn't have to make everyone laugh. It shouldn't have to encompass every yeah. taste and every. And yet there was this fucking visceral reaction because like I think there was this pressure for it to be the end all be all, and it's just not fucking fair. Yeah, it should, yeah. it's just. It's just not enough. Like we get crumbs. Like of course we've always been doing comedy. We've always been funny. We've always been thinking, feeling human beings. There's no reason why we wouldn't have been. <laughs> right. It's right. just the fucking the opportunities are are given like little little gifts that we should just accept uh, gracefully and graciously. Mm-hmm. When it's like fuck you. That's probably why I have a chip on my shoulder in comedy too, and why I'm like I'm gonna make a web series and I'm gonna be you know real aggressive on stage because I'm just like. Like, I do want to take what's mine, mm-hmm. not like I don't like the idea of it being granted to me, you know? Right. And I think that's essentially where your stage presence and confidence comes from. And I, I'm trying to figure out how someone can find that for themselves. How do I find that thing that makes me a, like get on stage with that level of confidence? I mean, I think... You just if if you get on stage and you feel fear and you feel 
like you, you don't have something valuable to give. If these like negative feelings take some time and figure out like where that's coming from, like why do you feel like your voice is not worthy of that stage and that show and that group get to the heart of that. And it might be some weird shit from your childhood. It might be who who knows? Like, I think it is like a, a psychological thing, but you need to make peace with that and know that your voice is valuable and like use it. And you don't, don't be afraid to fucking take it. You're on stage spotlights on you have fun and believe that you deserve to be there. And that might take a little bit of, I mean, it's funny because improv really is like, like group therapy. And Mm -hmm. I think it has therapeutic effects that you don't even realize, but I've seen people sort of come out of their shell and I've seen people fight Mm -hmm. demons through it. Like, you have you might end up confronting deeper shit than you expected but if you get there you you might be able to hit the stage and and fucking believe in yourself and like deliver those characters and not give a fuck what what people are maybe judging you for you know fuck them fuck them like you're great you know believe it <laughs> awesome i love that i love that advice i think there's a million more things we could probably discuss but we probably should go into the end of the podcast and figure okay. out something here that we can create together. Okay. And maybe that's along the lines of what we just discussed. Maybe we could plot a course for someone to figure out what it is that they need to do to get that that confidence on stage. Or what's an idea coming to your mind? We should um, we should do an inspirational rap song. Oh goodness, I am <laughs> not good at rap. At all. Oh. It took. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Do you think you could do it? I legitimately don't. (laughs) Uh, uh, Your North Coast mate, Boris Hyken, I took a class of his and um, haven't been practicing. And I'm sorry, Boris, publicly. I'm not doing the work I need to do. Uh, to be stronger yeah. uh what do you let's talk about that for a second what makes you tenacious in your rap what gets you there and how are you setting up your rhymes uh well what gets me there usually on the way to the show i'll drink like a big fucking coffee and i'll listen to like <laughs> Nicki minaj um something really like female and fierce and just mm-hmm. and i'll get into character because Peter McNerney once said to do musical improv, you need to endow yourself with like an inhumane level of confidence. And okay. that is true. You, you actually need to be Trumpian when you do it because it is fucking ridiculous. And I like, I mean, I love it, mm-hmm. but um, the whole audience in the, is clenching their ass waiting for you to fuck up. Mm-hmm. So you need to put them at ease. And so you just need to... Like, <laughs> take yourself to a whole new level of confidence and do whatever you got to do to get there. Mm-hmm. And then once I'm in it, I try to find a strong point of view for my character. And if I could tap into it personally um, or, like, really get into it, 
uh, it helps the words flow from a real place. And that helps me do like stream of consciousness rapping. Okay. But But if I can't do stream of consciousness, if my brain, sometimes your brain just isn't, it's just having a wonky day and it's not as clear that's when I'll usually just set up, I'll kind of just set up the punchline and then mm-hmm. like not like set it up and knock it out in a more formulaic way in my brain. I'm kind of like, oh, it's always so hard to explain this. I get what you're saying. That's actually something that Boris was teaching us in the class. So yeah. uh, what he was saying was like setting up a couplet where the funny part is the second line. And so you just, you know, if you want to end on rag and that's like a punchline then just find a word that rhymes with rag and then set up the second part of that couplet in a way that makes sense it's that sort of structure yeah exactly exactly so Mm -hmm. like yeah that's it if you're making a joke about donald trump you know having like a stupid toupee you you, like that might be the funny thing that pops in your head really quick because it's all happening really fast so you'll be like in your mind, you'll be like, okay, the guy wears a fucking toupee. And then you'll know that you have to be like, uh, mm-hmm. what's on the news today? Donald Trump wearing <laughs> a fucking toupee. Right, and, okay. And, and then you'll on to the next. It, it's like crazy how quickly your brain can actually calculate this shit. You're mm-hmm. like on stage in front of an audience and you're like, <laughs> like crunching words in your mind. It definitely takes practice, but it's pretty fun. Yeah. I have to be stone cold sober. <laughs> oh yeah i've heard this uh from a lot of people so i will totally fall on my face okay i doubt i can freestyle (laughs) okay we should yeah we could do an improv show or something or no we'll we'll figure out something we can do one day to get you out of your head okay you act like a crazy a cra- you know you i just want to see you on stage just being like totally like balls to the wall i don't give a fuck just like go wild do like really strong initiations mm-hmm. i want to do that whatever you're feeling that day whatever you're going through just like <clears throat> like just flop it on the stage for all to see that's exactly what i want to do and i i feel like i have two hang-ups with that one hang up of mine is just having the courage to be that open. And the other is sometimes I just feel like, like you were saying, my brain just isn't opening up uh, mm. in a show setting to all the references I could be making or, or experiences that I could be using and utilizing in a show. So I need to figure that out. Um, yeah. And sometimes that shit is literally like, how much sleep did you get last night? What hour did you eat? Like what I've noticed that just like having a healthy, like high functioning brain is like figuring out what time your show is and when you got to eat like a good, healthy meal. (laughs) Yeah. Bodies are weird. Yeah, they are. Um, So, okay. Let's, let's create this rap. Okay. Um, Uh, So it's an inspirational rap. Yeah, it's going to be a rap about coming out of your shell, whatever that means. Okay. Suggestion is coming out of your shell. So I'll bust a beat right now. Oh, gosh. I'll bust a beat. You can do this. I'll do it nice and slow, okay? Okay. Okay, ready? Don't know what to do. What the hell? Just trying to get out of my shell. 
Take my thing and I lose it. I didn't think of a second thing. You did good. <laughs> what? Thank you. I would see my instincts there would be like, what comes out of its shell? Like a turtle. Turtle's mm-hmm. hard to rhyme. I'd be like a snail. And okay. then I just be like, fuck it. And then I just do a whole thing about being like a lonely snail in the ocean. <laughs> but then at least I would, but then suddenly I would be like, I'd be a character and I'd be like, I'm a fucking snail in the ocean. And then suddenly all these things pop up and I'm like, oh, I have a point of view now. And I'm like spinning a yarn. It just helps the word kind of come more readily. Mm-hmm. So then it could be like, so I'm just trying to come out of this shell. I'm just a lonely old snail on the beach. Not In trying to get a tan. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, can't can't go anywhere because of the travel ban. Oh, that's so topical. <laughs> that would get a huge laugh. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do need to practice it in a, in a, out loud. And then maybe I can start doing it a little quicker, you know? Yeah, you just got to drill drill the rhyming words and, you know, it'll, you got to build up the, the library in your brain. Okay. You know? That's good advice. Yeah. You um, can do it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, do you want to bust a rhyme? Could you do it? I'm not good at beats. Uh, you, have to, you have to give me a sick beat. Oh, gosh. I can't do a sick one, and I'm sorry, Kayla. You You taught me. <laughs> But on this podcast, and I, again, didn't practice. Um, I'm, I'm like, so bad at, uh, I, I feel like all I can do is, like. That's great. That's, like, totally fine. Okay. For, for this purpose, that works. Okay, you need to give me a suggestion. Okay. The suggestion is uh, Dirty Sidewalk. Ooh, Dirty Sidewalk. Okay. Okay. And <laughs> all right, boots and cats and boots and cats. Oh shit, sticky icky. Now I feel dumb. I just stepped in some chewing gum. Yo, I really love New York City, but the garbage around this place is fucking shitty. And you know, it's summertime, so I think that it's time for my nose to get flooded with stink. You know what? It's so hot, it's a mirage, but the Fucking streets filled with garbage. Oh. oh, there it is. Yeah, Thanks. you know. You're awesome. <laughs> Thanks for being on the podcast, Katie. Um, it was super fun. Thank you for having me. I hope people like it. <laughs> I hope you liked it too, but I really hope that you learned something. That was a really thoughtful discussion that she had with us, and I really appreciate her sharing herself in that way. It was a lot to really take in and learn from, and and I think that can only be a good thing when you listen to such an honest and open-hearted discussion. And that's in addition to all the stuff you learned about confidence on stage and rap skill. That's really a good, well-round discussion, and I can't thank her enough for being on this episode. And if you want to follow her career, you can on katyberrycomedy.com. You can find her web series that she talked about there. And you can follow her on Twitter at katyfnberry, best Twitter handle ever. You can also follow North Coast at North Coast NYC and Magnet at Magnet Theater. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for us on iTunes. Until next time, be good to each other.
The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.